Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, April the 27th, 2012. This is episode 890 of the Survival Podcast. As it is Friday, 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 you know what that means. This is time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. And uh, you call that number. Don't expect to call in. Like if you're listening to this somewhere and you think I'm going to call in and be heard, this show doesn't stream. It's pre-recorded for new listeners. Uh, you're listening to something that happened a couple hours ago or a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago. But if you want to be on a future episode, you pick the phone up, you dial those numbers. Again, 866-65-THINK. You leave your message in about two minutes or less. If you're asking a question or making a point and then following it up with details, that is the way to do it. Don't give your details and then end with your question. Don't uh, give your details and end with your point. Uh, that will uh, give you demerits and make it less likely that you'll get through the screening process and on the show. About 30 to 40% of the calls that do come in do end up on the air. If you've called more than three or four weeks ago and haven't heard your stuff on the air yet, assume that uh, you didn't get through the first time. There may have been nothing wrong with your call at all. Uh, you may want to just call it back in or you may want to try to tighten it up a bit. It, it's one way or the other. Who knows? Uh, but if you listen to today's calls, the exception of one that I let through, because even though he kind of rambled on and on and on, he's a guy I love as a personal friend, and he's been around with the show forever. You'll know who he is. I won't point him out, but you'll know who he is when you hear him. Uh, that is generally not the way to ask your question. Let's get spot on quick, and uh, that way we can get good responses. Here's something else really cool today. You're going to hear uh, from a, an existing expert panel member today, uh, but his first time answering a panel question, Chef Keith Snow. And you're going to hear from a brand new surprise panel member today, somebody I've just recently met that I think can do a great job for us on certain questions, and uh, he's agreed to serve. You'll find out who he is when I put him on. Again, the expert panel for new people, these are people that usually at one time or another were guests on the show, and I really loved what they did so much and thought they had so much information to pass on that uh, I've asked them to serve as our panel of experts And some weeks I get a lot of questions that go to them, and some weeks I get no questions. But when I get them, I bring them on. There'll be four such examples today. All right, before we go ahead and get into your questions and the answers to them, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff Gleason, a.k.a. The Berkey Guy. Now, what are you going to get from The Berkey Guy? I know it's just really out there, but you're going to get Berkey water filter systems from the Berkey guy. I, it's amazing, isn't it, that the Berkey guy would sell this. But here's my question for you if you've never really thought about this before. You've decided you're going to get water filtration from your home, and then when you look at everything and the cost analysis and longevity and everything else, you realize, hey, Berkey is one of the best systems out there. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to buy. So... You decide you're going to buy a Berkey. Now, you could go to a gun show, and there'll be a preparedness booth there probably with Berkeys in it. You can go down to just about any of the stores that are now getting into the prepper mentality and get a Berkey. You can type Berkey into Google, and you can find Berkey all different places. Why Jeff? He's the Berkey guy. Who else are you going to go to? Why wouldn't you go to the Berkey guy for a Berkey? To be serious, though, for a minute, it's because he's been our sponsor for over three and a half years now. Total number of complaints from the audience about his quality of service or fixing errors or doing anything like that, zero. That's why. He's been taking care of the community for that long with zero negative feedback. Zero. 
That's pretty freaking outstanding. I don't get zero negative feedback. Jeff's the guy you want to deal with for that Berkey system. Check him out today. His website's directive21.com, directive21.com. You can also just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on his banner in the right-hand margin. That's the best way to find all our sponsors so you're not dealing with somebody that's just a brand pirate because, trust me, folks, they're out there. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maymont. I think silver and gold need to be part of your investment portfolio. Today you'll hear a couple questions that will explain to you why that might be a good freaking idea to uh, have some gold and silver as a backup form of currency for some of the things that might be coming. And uh, it's also the case that if you want to teach people about honest value and honest money, then you want to put something into their hands very, very young that's very, very cool. You'll find many opportunities to do that at silverandgoldshop.com with some of their very cool silver rounds that make better gifts for those kiddos that maybe you see a couple times a year for birthdays and Christmas and stuff, than plastic Chinese-made toy crap. I'm not saying not to get them any toys or anything like that. Kids are only kids once. But maybe you don't do 100% of your gift cost into something like that. Maybe you put a real ounce of silver in their hand, tell them how it's going to grow in value the same way that they're going to grow in value over time. That's a good message to give a kid. And you're going to hear some things that we need to be telling our children at the end of today's show Hold on, folks. Today is going to rock you. I promise you, at the end of today's show, you're going to feel really proud of something. Maybe you've started to lose some pride in. Uh, next up, I want to remind you, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are great ways to stay in touch with me and get extra information that doesn't make it on the show. I uh, also want to remind you, you can check out the TSP Copper Shop, tspcopper.com. Is Copper Silver's little brother? Maybe. I don't know, but it has a long history of money. It's very affordable, and the TSP Copper Medallion and the other medallions in our store are great ways to spend, uh, send great messages about libertarianism, freedom, honest money, and other great subjects that I think you'd want to share with people. At 34 bucks for a roll of 20, there's a very affordable way to spread a lot of really good messages. Check it out today again, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and uh, military law enforcement peace corps active duty prior service email me jack at the survival podcast.com with something like service discount in the subject line tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did and i will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service before you join the brigade so you can get a special price uh, with that i do have the housekeeping wrapped up i'm ready to take your first question and if you cannot tell i am jazzed up today i was kind of off my game yesterday i was upset about something i was angry about something else Today, I am angry, but I'm righteously angry, and that's a lot better form of anger to have. Uh, but I'm also excited because we have so much great stuff to cover today. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. This is Eric from the Cornfields, Indiana. <clears throat> I was just curious. I know uh, you have stated before that uh, you raised and bred uh, snakes for uh, uh, whatever reason. I'm assuming you did it for reasons other than harvesting them. I really haven't heard you talk much about it at all, other than just to drop uh, that much info that you did it. So I was kind of curious. Uh, there used to be a restaurant in Indianapolis that, where, where you could actually get hors d'oeuvres, uh, rattlesnake meat, uh, and it was awesome. Uh, it's no longer there, unfortunately. But uh, do you harvest your snakes? Do you breed them for that? Do you breed them for vitamins? Uh, why haven't you made a show about any of those things? Uh, if you do harvest them, you just sell the hides. You make crafts out of the hides, like gloves or um, uh, gun holsters, anything like that. What are the kind of snakes that you do uh, breed and grow? Uh, and if you do harvest the meat, what kind of foods do you make out of it? Uh, just think it would be awesome for you to do a show about your snakes and what you do with them or, or 
even somebody that you know that might do those things that you don't necessarily do uh, when you do breed them. So I think it will be a great show, and I hope you do one soon. Uh, take care, Jack. Love everything you do. Keep it up. Already got some uh, TSP copper on the way, I hope, and uh, power to bartering, man. Death taxes. Thanks a lot. God bless. Bye. Uh, the main reason I played that call is it's just a fun question to answer and a way to get to know Jack a little bit better personally instead of a heavy-duty topic like we're going to have plenty of today. Um, the reality is I bred snakes because when I grew up, I used to watch TV shows like Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom and watch that old man, Marlon Perkins, roll around with a giant uh, anaconda, and I thought snakes were the coolest thing in the world. All I wanted was to own snakes as a kid, and my parents were afraid of them and wouldn't let me. I grew up in the swamps of Florida chasing them. I had a mentor uh, that taught me to handle venomous snakes safely and responsibly at shockingly 11 years of age. And I, uh, I've done it quite a bit over time. I've only ever been actually bit once. It had nothing to do with handling a snake. It had to do with what they call a legitimate bite. It was in the uh, in, in the in the woods while I was fishing, and I stepped on the back of a copperhead. He bit me, and I bared him no ill will for that. Um, And I always kind of wanted, like, you know, when I was thinking about the college path and, you know, it, before I realized it wasn't right for me, I wanted to go into the field of herpetology and study reptiles and amphibians and other wild creatures and spend my time in, in the woods, in the swamps, in the savannas, and, and chasing these things and doing this stuff you see these adventurous guys uh, do on TV today, like including and up to, you know, the, uh, the uh, late, great... Uh, Steve Irwin, known as the Crocodile Hunter. And so when you have that kind of a childhood and you have that kind of, of, of something that you really you know want to pursue and, and you end up not pursuing it, then eventually when you become a successful adult and you have some money, maybe you figure out some small way to partake in it. So that's what I did. And I started with a few snakes and I ended up with one time with over 60 animals and I started keeping specifically a, a breed of snakes called African house snakes. And I think still there's a lot of work that could be done with those with breeders. Uh, they're one of the species that hasn't really been evolved yet. They're a great easy to care for snake that any kid uh, could have as a first pet and they were different and there's all different types of things you could do done with them and I went kind of crazy and I ended up with like my entire office down in Texas completely full from floor to ceiling with all these racks and eventually I started bartering them off trading them off and now I keep five they were never being kept for food ever today I keep a Dermills boa a, a regular boa a Taiwan beauty rat snake Uh, and a carpet python. Those are all fairly large snakes, and I have a little guy that's kind of my favorite little guy that's actually a diadem snake, and uh, I keep them in my office, and I feed them rats, and they're just cool, and I'm actually thinking about getting rid of them, all except my little guy. Um, they just don't fit my life as well anymore. I've kind of done that now, and I've gotten that out of my system, but that was really the inner child thing coming out, Like, and I got a lot of great experience out of that, and a, great, a lot of great rewarding things out of that, and I learned a lot, and I actually did some pretty decent academic work on uh, uh, the uh, Lamphorus species or the African house snakes that's still up in a little blog called AfricanHouseSnake.net and solved a lot of problems uh, that breeders that were working with the animals were having with sterility in their offspring. So it was really a great experience, but I'm kind of done with that now, but Like many of the experiences in my life that I've had, like being a mechanic in the Army, being in the Army Airborne, all the things that I've learned from that experience I continue to bring forward with me and rely on it. 
So occasionally when you hear me reference back to it, it's not that I'm still doing it in earnest, but something that I learned about genetics or something that I learned about animal behavior or something that I learned about marketing from, you know, determining whether or not there was really a market for these things and did I really want to create it and, you know, was it profitable and things like that comes from that field. So I'll reference back to it. So now you know the rest of the story is uh, the late Paul Harvey used to say, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Josh from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have a question for either you or uh, somebody on the expert council. I am looking to get an AR-15, but I'm having trouble cutting through the hype and the um, and, and the BS to see what is worthwhile and what isn't. Whether a direct impingement system or a gas system is better, whether there's better calibers other than just two, two, three, five, five, six. Um, in the AR platform. I'd love your opinion or somebody else's opinion on this and help me kind of clutter through it. I only like to buy things once, and I try to buy the best I can. So any help would be great. Thanks for all you do, and I appreciate it. Bye. Well, I uh, I own a couple ARs, and uh, I have my reasons for what I've selected, uh, but I am not an AR platform expert by any means or any stretch of the imagination. I actually am a lot more fond of uh, my hunting weapons than my tactical weapons. I have my tactical weapons in case, God forbid, I ever need a tactical weapon. I have my hunting weapons because I really love to shoot them and I really love to hunt. So uh, when I look at our council and I think who's the best person on the council to answer this question would be Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants. So I've asked him to answer this question. Uh, he's done a fabulous job. Frank, take it away. Hi, this is Frank Sharp of Fortress Defense Consultants. I'm responding here to Josh from Tulsa, Oklahoma's question about the AR-15 system, uh, gas system versus piston. Uh, the short answer is I would suggest that you and most of the listeners here stick with the original stoner design gas system if that's what you're going to do. Um, I would also suggest that anybody in North America have an AR-15 be familiar with it, know how it runs, because it's what our nation uses. Uh, you know, Canada, Mexico, uh, the United States not being one nation, but all three of those nations use that system. It's something we should all be familiar with and know how to use. Uh, how this works with the gas system, um, I've seen a lot of them come through courses over the past five years or so, and I've been unimpressed with most of them. There are some new designs out there that look promising, but I haven't personally had my hands on them. And at this point, staying with what we have and what we know works, we've worked the bugs out of the AR-15 system pretty well at this point. Um, for those in the audience who are wondering what you need to do to accessorize to make your rifle more reliable, uh, there's a piece called the D-Ring, which is made by MGI Industries in Maine, uh, Max Glenn Industries. It's a little D-shaped O-ring that goes over the extractor spring, and that's really the weak link in that system. So I think it's a $13, $15 part. Buy one, put it in your rifle. That's really the biggest upgrade that I suggest everyone make for their rifle. Um, back to the piston op rod situation, uh, H&K makes something called a 416, as I'm remembering, uh, those have had a ton of problems even working with standard magazines. I think Magpul's making their own magazine for that rifle now called an E-Mag, so I wouldn't go in that direction either. If we are going to go with a piston rifle, uh, I would check into like the Robinson XCR or the SIG 5.56. Those are both much more reliable systems and where I would go with that. Uh, so, long story short here, stick with a stock rifle. 
Um, right now, we're recommending that uh, there's an MP3 coating, which is a, a nice slick uh, coating that they put on a lot of rifle parts now. Um, the bolt carrier, the charging handle, um, and the bolt, I would send those out to Robar and get those coated. Uh, that will really improve the reliability of the rifle. And right now, the best brand that I can recommend that I've seen the most of and, and am most impressed with is the Smith & Wesson M&T 15 series. Uh, I actually picked one up two weeks ago uh, for my own personal use. It's the Magpul version, which comes with all the Magpul accessories on it, their collapsible stock, their end, and their sighting system. Uh, we've run it through two rifle courses, not even a hiccup, and right now Smith & Wesson's customer service is far none the best. So uh, the M&P is probably the way to go. There's other other companies out there that are equally as reliable, but truth being told, there's probably a hundred companies making AR-15 systems right now, and it's virtually impossible for us to stay up on all of them. So I hope that answers your question, and if you have any others, you can get a hold of me at frank at fortressdefense.com, and you can check us out on the web at www.fortressdefense.com, and our phone number is 708-522-8060, and for those in the listening audience, a week from now, uh, first week of May, we're going to be in West Virginia doing a level one pistol class in the tactical medical. So get out there and join us, and we'll see you out on the road. Bye. Well, uh, I was really happy to hear the recommendation on the M&P because it's the one that I've recommended when I've had the question in the past. It's the, the most recent AR purchase I made about a year ago. I bought a Smith & Wesson M&P, exactly what Frank said, except that I went with the one that had the uh, the A2A3 style uh, handle where you had the standard carry handle and you could remove it instead of any kind of optics or anything added to it. Because I knew I was going to do things on my own with that, but all the rest of the stuff is the Magpul uh, forend and, 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 and uh, stock and what have you. Uh, it came with a few uh, the Magpul magazines, which I agree are the best thing that you can possibly own as far as your mags. And I don't even think you save enough buying, uh, you know, surplus mags or whatever to do anything else uh, because they are so damn reliable. Uh, what I'll add to it is that um, the the site that I eventually went with was a, the new Brunel's uh, CQB T-Dot. And uh, for those of you guys that are kind of wanting a, a close quarters uh, combat site on your AR platform and also want to be able to shoot long range, Uh, this thing is the bomb. It really is. I owe you guys a review. I owe Brunel's a review on it because they sent it to me. But uh, as soon as I put it on my web, and I just thought this is one of the best uh, uh, CQB sites I've ever seen. And uh, I haven't been able to take it out to true long-range shooting, but using the T-post for the close you know, 7 meters and then shooting at 100 meters with the, uh, the center dot, was spot on. So uh, I would maybe add taking a look at that. And then to, to uh, reaffirm Frank's recommendation of the Smith & Wesson M&P, uh, my good friend Brian Black over at ITS Tactical, of course, you know, lives in the world of ARs and tactical and, and all that stuff. So when I went to buy that gun, knowing that, you know, I know what I know, but I don't know everything, I took Brian along with me. You know, getting Brian to go to a gun shop wasn't real difficult. Uh, we went through about six different ARs, and he didn't go in there with any in opinion of the manufacturers. He started pulling them apart, looking at the bolt carriers and things like that. And when he looked at all of them, he said, buy this one. And I'm not a fool. I said, okay, I'll buy that one. And it was a lot of the things Frank was talking about. But Brian really wasn't trying to, you know, I guess at the time wasn't up on all the new weapons that were there or everything they put in front of us. Uh, he had certain opinions about different manufacturers, but he knew what he was looking for. And when he evaluated six different uh, manufacturers' ARs, 
and looked at the internal components, he said, this is what I would buy myself if I were buying one today. So uh, I guess uh, Frank and Brian, great minds kind of think alike. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Wes in Memphis, Tennessee. I've called in before, a long-time listener of your podcast. I love the work you're doing. I was downtown just a little while ago having a lunch meeting uh, with some customers and, and with my uh, boss, and we walked outside, and I was accosted. Uh, well, accosted might not be the right word, but harassed and bugged by somebody who was obviously looking for money. But in any case, it was at that moment in that situation that I realized that your advice, that not only should you carry a lethal uh, weapon such as a firearm, but you should carry a less than lethal weapon. Because uh, in this particular situation, uh, it was not enough of a threat that I could, you know, draw a firearm. But at the same point in time, it was enough of a situation that had I had pepper spray, I would have used it on the individual that came back to uh, ask us for money yet a third time and was very, very aggressive. So, Jack, you know, for all the listeners out there, they really need to think about that less than lethal option for when you cannot pull lethal force out and leverage it, but you do need something to uh, get them to go away. So just wanted to call, and, and maybe you'll use this on the air. Thanks. Uh, I'm using it on the air because it's a great call and another great example, and there's a couple things unsaid there that if I bring out will just reinforce everything. Number one, I just read an article, I may cover it later, I may not, about George Zimmerman, of course, the gentleman that ended up tragically shooting Trayvon Martin in South Florida. I don't think he wanted to kill anybody. Uh, we really don't know what happened there. All of the media talk about this is bullshit until the trial comes out, and people keep asking my opinion of it, and my opinion is I have no opinion other than it's too bad that somebody died. Um, but that doesn't mean that the person that died was right. I, I, I don't know what's going to go on here. I, if you want me to give you my prediction based on everything I've heard, uh, Zimmerman will be charged with second-degree murder, which we know is the case. It's likely that they'll try to plea bargain. It won't happen. Uh, the state not being foolish and knowing it's likely to lose is likely to introduce a second charge of some sort of a manslaughter charge giving the jury two options on conviction, and they're likely to get a conviction on the lower, lesser charge. Right or wrong, uh, that's what's likely to happen. So that's that's a prediction, not an opinion, okay, just so you guys understand that. Because I have no opinion because I don't know. So stop asking because I'm not going to be dumb like the rest of these people out there trying to advocate for one side or the other when I know damn well I don't have all the facts. It's called responsible journalism, uh, NBC, CBS, uh, Fox News, all of you. Responsible journalism. Take an example from a hack that runs a podcast. Don't voice your opinions when you don't freaking know. And by the way, don't edit audio tapes. Um, but the, the reason that I bring up the article is it tells kind of more of the story. And the reality is that when uh, Zimmerman first started having problems in the neighborhood, one of the things he did was get, go out and get pepper spray because of a dog. And a police officer informed him he should go get a permit and get a gun because this pit bull would likely be on him and tear him apart before he could you know, spray it. It takes two to four seconds for it to really take good effects, what the officer told him, and the dog could be on him and have serious damage done in under a second. So that was he was advised to go out and get a gun. Well, apparently, I guess a lot of people like that when they – when they get a gun, they stop carrying the less than lethal uh, option. And all I'm going to tell you is, I don't know what would have happened, but it's at least possible that if he had been carrying, let's say, a 3.5-ounce good-sized canister of uh, Inferno pepper spray from Cold Steel, something like that with a significant amount, um, 
that all of the misery that's come from this, including the loss of life, may not have happened, including the threats of violence and the potential for rioting and race wars uh, that the media seems to be just, just can't stand that they haven't been able to lather up yet. All of that could have not happened. It might still have happened this way. We don't know the facts on the ground. It may have been that the man still felt that he had to usually divorce. He could have been wrong. He could have been right. I don't know. I'm just saying that the option wasn't there. And then the result only had one outcome. Somebody getting shot. Okay, so there's one. Uh, the other thing is, let's say you have somebody behaving aggressively to you like that, to the point where you actually feel threatened. Drawing a weapon at that time when you do not intend to discharge it changes everything. If a law enforcement officer happens to observe it, it looks like you're the bad guy. If an armed citizen observes it, looks like you're the bad guy. If the guy all of a sudden runs to the authorities and says you threatened him with a gun, you've got a potential brandishing charge. Really, we need to not ever be drawing a weapon until we intend on shooting. With the way the law works, it sounds crazy, but it's true, especially in some states. If you say, hey, dude, you see this? Do you want some of this or do you want to leave? And there's a great big fire flame thing on the on the label. You know who it is? He's likely to go away. And what's he going to run and tell law enforcement? You threatened him with pepper spray when you were walking down the street and he would see what I mean? So it's yet another option. There's another way to look at that. It's not that you would have to pay, pull it out and spray somebody with Most people really would prefer not to be sprayed in the face with pepper spray or mace. They really would. It sucks ass. Anybody who's experienced it knows how bad it sucks. So it allows you to deter somebody who's being aggressive without actually using it. We're doing so with a firearm in many instances. Why'd you even pull it out, sir? You don't want to have to answer that question, even if everything ends up working out okay. And you've also now, one thing we have to remember as armed citizens, anytime we draw a weapon, anytime we draw a weapon, we can be perceived as the aggressor by a, a legitimate, just good, solid third party, whether that's law enforcement or a fellow citizen. And we have to be very careful when we do that, that we do things quick, fast, and we identify ourselves as the good guy. Uh, as Frank, Frank Sharp, who we heard from earlier today, talked about the last time he was on the air. But if we have the option of pulling out that pepper spray, if we have that option, then we don't have to put ourselves in that compromised position. All right? Great call, great point. Let's take another one. Hello, this is John from Arizona. I have a question about the storage of fresh fruits. Every week I go to the grocery store, I buy enough fresh fruits to get the family through, but I have a habit of buying extra. At the end of the week, they tend to be going bad. I was wondering if maybe you have a member of your expert council that could give us some ideas to cook things up with fruits that are logical bad or maybe good ways to store them to prolong them from going bad. Uh, I've been taking to put some in the freezer for some smoothies, but I'm open to any suggestions out there. I like to save my money, and I don't like... I mean, when I first away. started, the easy answer is canning for much. fruits, right? Or dehydrating right. for fruits, or freezing, depending on the fruit. Those are the three options, but I don't really know when you're talking about going to the store, you're talking about small quantities left over at the end of a week and things like that. And maybe there's ways we could cook with them. Maybe there's some other things. And who would be better to answer that than the illustrious Chef Keith Snow? So uh, I uh, sent this one over to Keith, and uh, he had a home run with it. Here's uh, his answer. Again, Chef Keith Snow, member of the uh, expert council of uh, TSP Advisors. 
John from Arizona. This is Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. I wanted to help you out with that fruit storage and usage question that you called into the show. Uh, thanks for calling in, number one. Um, and let's talk a little bit about fruits. Now, uh, it's a good thing that you're buying and eating fruits, number one. And uh, you are correct. They do not last forever. And this is something that uh, can be a problem for people that uh, aren't, you know, super into cooking with fruits or don't have a lot of storage and usage ideas on hand. This is something that can be easily learned by everybody out there. Uh, but let me just give you a couple of pointers and, and some of the things that I like to do, and hopefully that will help you out. Uh, number one, with bananas, uh, I personally do not like bananas that get overripe. When they start to get those little black spots on them, and we all know if you have bananas, they don't last more than two, three days, and they start to go uh, black. When they get to that point, the starch and sugar content inside changes. It changes rapidly. And for me, I don't like the flavor of bananas like that. I like them slightly underripe, particularly when I have them in a smoothie. So what we do here at our house is we'll take those bananas and we throw them in a zip bag in the refrigerator, excuse me, in the freezer. And when we get about eight of them, uh, we'll make a banana walnut bread. And that's a great recipe. It's got a lot of butter in it. So it's super yummy. And you can check out a video um, either on my YouTube page or at harvesteating.com that shows you how to do that. Um, so that's kind of bananas. Now, things like fruits or uh, berries that are soft, you know, you've got blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, blackberries. Those things don't last a long time either. And when you pick blue, uh, blueberries, for instance, and raspberries, for instance, those are fine just by putting them in the refrigerator. So I'd like to, what I like to do is, is, uh, wash them off really quickly under cold water and then um, make sure that they're padded dry with some paper towels and then I either put them uh, right on a plate with a paper towel under them in the refrigerator or maybe a bowl. You don't want to jam them inside of a bowl. And then when they're cool like that in the fridge, they tend to last a little longer. So that's um, how I would handle those. Strawberries, uh, you want to keep those at room temperature. Make sure they've got a lot of air and they're not jammed into a container. Usually when you get those in those plastic containers, the ones underneath really start to suffer. So you want those, you know, you've probably seen those uh, Debbie Meyer green bags. Those things actually do work. Um, you know, a bag like that or just an open bowl in the container, maybe with a, a light paper towel tossed over it, that's going to be best. Do not wash strawberries until you're ready to eat them. If you wash them, it really increases the, the spoilage. Um, the other thing that you can do with any of those berries is you can do what's called IQF, individual quick frozen or quick freezing. You take them and you wash them and then put them on a sheet tray in an individual layer and they don't want to be touching each other a couple of inches apart. Put them into your freezer like that and what happens is because they're wet, uh, they're going to form a good hard frozen, after about two, three hours, they're going to freeze pretty solid. Then you can put them in a zip bag and then they'll last in there quite a bit of time. Uh, and then you can use them for smoothies or you know, let them uh, thaw out in the, heck, you could nuke them for 30 seconds, put them over ice cream, whatever you're doing. Um, you can also take those those berries and cook them down into what I call compotes. And compote is a fancy word for, you know, cooked down fruit, let's be honest. You just take, let's say you're, you wanted to do, uh, you want to take some chicken breast, you want to marinate those things with olive oil, garlic, and fresh rosemary. 
and uh, let them sit for about two hours. Then you're going to grill those things. They're going to come off looking incredible with all that rosemary and garlic flavor. Take your raspberries. Put a bunch of raspberries into a pot with a little bit of sugar and cook them down. They're going to quickly start to break apart the juice and the pectin that's naturally in there. Pectin is a natural thickening agent. When you can and make jellies and jams, we add in a powdered or liquid pectin. That helps to what we call tighten it up. So if you um, cook down the raspberries, blueberries, apples, whatever fruit it is, eventually the pectin that's inside will come out. And then when you cool it off, it might not look so thick in the pan when it's ripping hot, but as you cool it off, it'll, tight to, it'll tend to thicken up. Now you take that chicken that I just mentioned and you make this raspberry compote, cool it off, you know, put that, take it out of the bowl that it cooked or the pot that it cooked in, put it in the refrigerator, let it cool off, and then you, um, you know, you want to strain it because it's got a lot of seeds in it. Put it through a strainer and use the back of a spoon, press it through. And then now you've got a compote or the French would call it a coulis, whatever. It's a, it's a little fruit that you can put on the bottom of that plate and put that grilled chicken on top of it. It's a magical uh, combination of flavors. Trust me, that rosemary and the garlic, the grill flavor with that beautiful, slightly sweet raspberry um, compote is awesome. So there's an idea for that. Now, with things like apples, people uh, eat a lot of apples. I personally want to avoid apples at all costs. From the end of the year, I don't touch apples until probably July because they start to come in season around here in July. And honestly, the first early season apples are a shadow of their former glory. They're not great, the early season ones. When you start to get into late August, September, October, that's where you get the real gems, in my opinion. But apples will store for a good long time when they're cold. And you want to find either a root cellar or your basement or, heck, even the garage is fine. We used to keep them out in a barn, and uh, they would stay for a couple of months. Now, you can put apples in the refrigerator as well. And uh, also fruits like melons and uh, peaches, watermelon, cantaloupe. I like to keep those things cold because they're just more refreshing to eat that way. Um, but when you have things like apples and peaches, when they start to go past their prime, um, cook them down. You know, for apples, you can peel those apples, put them in a pot, a little bit of sugar or maybe a vanilla bean. Cook that thing down, and once it's, don't cook it to death, but when it's soft but still a little chunky, take it out, sprinkle some cinnamon, a little bit of Vermont maple syrup, mix that up, and then um, put that in a bowl with a drizzle of uh, real organic heavy cream, and you've got yourself a super treat. And same thing with peaches, a great recipe for peaches. Let those peaches cook down, a little bit of sugar, throw in a spicy pepper like a habanero or a daddle, a little bit of minced up cilantro, let that thing cook down. You want to add a touch of salt as well to bring the flavors out. Once that cools down to room temperature and thickens up, it pairs incredibly well with some fried chicken. Now, with the warmer weather, maybe a Memorial Day weekend coming up, Maybe you cook a batch of fried chicken, or if you've got to go buy it, that's fine too. But let it come to room temperature, or even put it in the fridge, because there's nothing better than uh, if you take cold fried chicken out of the refrigerator, and this is just my opinion, let it come up to room temperature and serve it with this peach and habanero jam. It's awesome, and we love to do stuff like that with, with these kind of fruit compotes. Um, also, you can take apples that are... You know, starting to go and you can remove the core 
and stuff them with nuts, a little bit of brown sugar, maybe some oats. You know, make a concoction of nuts, brown sugar, oats, and butter, a little maple syrup, touch of cinnamon, and um, stuff that down in there. And you bake them in the oven for about 45 minutes. They'll start to get soft. And same story, take those out. You know, heck, get a big bowl of beautiful vanilla ice cream and put that gorgeous apple on top, a little bit of uh, organic heavy cream. You're living large. So don't, I guess what I'm trying to say is don't freak out when your uh, fruits start to go soft. Just look at it as an opportunity to make other recipes with them. Because fruits are, they're magic in the kitchen. They're not just good for eating out of hand. They're super good to cook with. And just about any type of fruit can be used in another way, whether it be a smoothie or a banana bread or one of these, um, you know, fruit sauces or compotes or roasting them. You know, there's a restaurant that's uh, close to me. It's called Caramine. It's an old family-run restaurant. It's a little log cabin on the river. And they have a set menu. And you can only get a few things, ham, fried trout or grilled trout, fried chicken, uh, chicken livers, a couple of different proteins. And then every table, when you get there, they bring you out little family-style macaroni salad, a um, little bit of coleslaw, some, I think it's some, some biscuits that they make there. And then they also have these um, cooked apples. And they just take whole apples, they put them in a big thing in the oven, and they cook them down. And when you cook fruit, the, the sweetness intensifies, particularly with apples. They start to get that caramelized thing going on. And they'll serve you a little tub of apples on the table. And it is a great foil to fatty foods like, you know, fish and chicken livers and fried chicken, all those things that tend to be a little rich. The uh, sweet fruit goes very well with it. It also helps your digestion because uh, the fruits come naturally with different enzymes in them. And when you when you start eating fruits with things that are harder to digest, your stomach uh, has more enzymes in it. So it, it tends to help with digestion. But um, John from Arizona, I hope these ideas helped you. Uh, be sure to check out the HarvestEating.com website. There's lots of tips and ideas there and uh, i hope you uh, continue buying cooking and eating with fresh fruits see you later man bye-bye well there's your bonus guys you just got a mini podcast uh almost a mini full podcast episode on cooking and utilizing fruits keith just rocks i mean the reason that he put that much time and effort into that response is because he he really loves working with this community and uh keith thank you for that great ideas and of course it's like you know 10 o'clock in the morning now and now i'm freaking hungry and i usually don't even eat till like two or three o'clock thanks a lot dude uh anyway let's go ahead and take another call hi jack this is prepper jim from the forum i'm a member of the support brigade for two years now coming to you from houston texas I'm considering getting a storage unit to store extra preps, both because I'm running out of space in the house and because I want a secondary location for some preps in case the house uh, burns down or gets hit by a hurricane. Uh, also, a uh, third reason is my wife is not in favor of having a lot of guns in the house, and I would like to acquire more guns, and it was actually her idea to get a storage space uh, to put the extra guns in beyond a shotgun and a, a handgun. So I'm wondering what should I consider when getting this storage unit? Uh, first of all, obviously the cost. In Houston, Texas, it will definitely need to be climate controlled. But location, um, should I have it within walking distance or further from the house in case a regional uh, disaster happened? I would want access to it uh, to get the guns to go to the gun range. Uh, 
second or uh, in addition to that would be the overall security. And then storing guns. Uh, should I have a gun safe or somehow kind of camouflage it in, in the unit? Um, and also, are you aware of any restrictions on food storage or ammo storage in uh, different storage units? Or should I even ask the question or just go ahead and do it or read their uh, restrictions on that? But I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, alternate uh, rental storage units for preps and things to consider uh, along that line. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Bye-bye. Well, I'm going to sound a little bit like a dick here uh, in, the, in the beginning. I am going to answer your question, and I'm going to try to help you with everything, and, and probably not to you. I'm going to sound like it to your wife. I'm going to sound a little bit like a dick. Uh, because the first thing I'm going to tell you that you need to do is you need to sit down with your wife and have a conversation that more guns are no more dangerous than a couple guns. And if you're going to invest in a gun safe anyway, which is a great investment and a good idea, and you have the additional guns in your home somewhere with a gun safe in the back of a closet with them locked in that safe, they're safer there for everybody than they are somewhere else. They're safer for you because there's less risk of theft. They're safer for society because there's less risk of theft. Okay? You got that? And there's no way that, you know, a kid's going to, well, what if, because that's always women. Women always do this crap. What if Johnny finds it? Johnny's not getting in the safe. That's why you keep it locked in a safe. All right? So the best place for the majority of your firearms are right in your home, in a good safe. And even if you're hit by a tornado, that safe ain't going to go that far, and you're going to be able to recover your guns. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is the majority of the additional guns that you purchase should probably be in a safe in your home. Assuming you can't get over that hurdle, assuming your wife won't listen to reason, uh, and I know I sound like a jerk, but I mean, seriously, it, 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 it doesn't make sense to fear an inanimate object, right? And, and the only fear that that inanimate object should be able to create is what if somebody does something with that inanimate object? Well, if it's locked in a safe and only you and perhaps her know how to get in there, then it can't do anything, Okay. So now let's say that we're going to store some stuff off-site. You know, leave firearms off until the end, and I'll come back to how we handle that. I think it's a great idea. I think it's something that many people should consider. I think people in Houston, uh, all through the Tornado Alley, you know, up through Dallas and Kansas, and really should consider because if we're hit, especially by a tornado, um, we've got real, real problems. We really do. We have immense amount of problems. Uh, it, it, because no matter how well we've stored everything, we've probably had major damage to our structure, and much of what we've stored has now been compromised. So unless we have, you know, unlimited funds, we have like a tornado bunker or something like that where we can put all our stuff below ground. It's a great idea. And if you live again in a very earthquake-prone zone or a very uh, heavy tornadic storm zone, uh, it's almost imperative that eventually you make the choice to do something like that. One of the challenges for you, though, is you have two primary storm-based threats in Houston, one being tornadic storms and one being hurricanes. The good of the good, if there is any good of tornadoes, is that they have relatively small strike areas. So there are some exceptions where you have a one-mile-wide tornado that stays on the ground for nine miles and leaves a path of devastation that, when you see it, you, like what I saw in Birmingham, you just can't even get your head around it. But in general, most of the time, tornadoes are spots here and there. And they also tend, in most areas, to track in a general direction, which is what we want to determine. 
We want to determine in your area of Houston, when there have been tornadoes in the past, where have they touched down, and what has there been their general track of direction. And then your off-site storage, you know what to do. You need to find if, if a tornado track were to come through in that general direction coming across your home, Anything outside of that general track would be a much better place to store your stuff off-site than something directly in that track line. Because what a devastating thing to have a tornado that takes out your house and your storage unit at the same time. So you want to get off that general... It's not 100%, but if you get the weather maps for any area of the country, you will see that there's a general track, and it seldom breaks that general track of direction. So, sure, you can have multiple tornadoes, whatever. With the hurricane, you need to look at what is the facility's strength and get it's, you know, as far away from the coast as you can that's practical for you. On the distance, I would say a minimum distance of 10 miles to create enough redundancy in the solution Uh, you know, it used to drive me crazy with clients when I was in the cable industry, and they'd say they want to run two cables for redundancy, but they wanted to run those two cables, you know, a couple feet apart from each other, you know, in the ground or in a ceiling, didn't matter. It's like they're not far enough apart to create redundancy. They need to take completely different paths. So taking that over to here, we need to look at, I would say, a minimum of 10 miles. That's not that bad to drive to pick things up and get things. I would also try, if you can get everything to work out, that when you leave your home, the primary way you would be going if you were bugging out, that would be where you would be passing. So I would look at that. From a standpoint of storing firearms, I, I've never even looked into it, so I don't know what the rules and regulations are. Uh, and I think each facility would have their own rules and regulations. I would operate on a don't ask, don't tell, but no uh, philosophy. And what I mean by that is I would you know, basically evaluate prospective storage facilities Uh, and I would look for security. I would definitely look for, if you're going to put guns in there, and definitely food, indoor climate-controlled storage uh, with a high level of security. And I would say I want to see, you know, I want to know what your policies are. What, can you, can you, in a lot of places they'll have a, a document you can download from their website or whatever and just read it. If it doesn't say anything about not keeping firearms, then I would just assume you can. If it specifically says you cannot, then I would look for another facility. I would not want to be in violation of that law. Again, I probably wouldn't do this But if that's what you have to do, that's what I would do. I would definitely say that within the facility, there should be at least one more layer of security, even if it's just a locker, you know, a cheaper locker if you can't afford a safe when you add the cost of storage and everything in within there. And I would also tell you to camouflage it so that it's covered up with some type of tarp or something like that. So if somebody does happen to look in there while you're you know, accessing it, it's not real obvious what's in there. It doesn't become a target. But again, I would invest in a good security mechanism, and I would keep these things in my home, at least the, the, the primary uh, firearms that I owned. And if you have a handgun in your home and a shotgun in your home, odds are you have those for home defense, and those are probably not locked up. And if they are, I'm sorry, that's a mistake because you don't have time to get them out. You do not have time to get them out when you're in a crisis. You have to have them somewhere where they're accessible. So those would be the primary dangers that you'd have anyway. Additional firearms locked up in a secure safe pose absolutely no risk to anybody. And the minute that you take them out of the house, you put yourself at additional risk if they're stolen, you know, unless it was specifically we store firearms, even though they don't say they don't, then maybe you end up with some lawyer coming after you because, well, they shouldn't have been there even though you were allowed to, and because they were stolen and used in a crime, now you're liable, right? So you're opening up yourself to things that you don't need to open yourself up to. That's that's one of the ways that I look at it. Um, 
Now, I bet you could come up with another option. I bet you if you go to a range that's like a traditional like indoor range, like at a gun store or something like that, and you talk to the owner of that facility and said, I would like to purchase some firearms and have them stored here and pay you a storage fee on them, he would probably say yes. That's something I bet you could work out. There's probably firearms uh, dealers that are doing that for people already. Uh, I still don't think it's ideal, but I think it's, that your gun secured in a gun store is a lot more safe than your gun stored in a U-Haul storage facility if that's even permitted by their policies. I just wouldn't do it. And I would try to have a rational conversation with your wife And I would say, why don't we go shopping for safes together? And, you know, look at the, the 12 giant freaking bolt locks that, that hold the, you know, the, the door of a safe shut. Explain to her how it works and then say, and how would anybody that's not supposed to get in there? And isn't that safer for everyone than 10 miles away in a locker somewhere where somebody with a good pair of bolt cutters can theoretically get in? And I would stick to the off-site storage being for food and things like that. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, my name's Paul. I'm from Australia. Um, I've got a question for Stephen Harris. I've just bought a solar PV panel, um, 170 watts um, when it was peak power, when it was undamaged, and it's damaged. I've got two questions. The first is um, the, the panel's um, got the glasses shattered all across the front. And the question is, what is the best way to fix a shattered panel on a PV, um, solar PV panel? Um, is it best, for instance, to uh, just glue some, uh, seal some uh, glass over the top, or is there something that I could spray on that wouldn't be a, affect the um, performance of the panel too much and also not get um, damaged by the, by the sun? Um, so any tips on that would be great. Second one, um, I'm thinking of getting, this is a sort of test, and if this is successful, then I'm thinking of maybe um, getting a whole bunch of these panels and putting them on the roof. And I was thinking of maybe using them without any batteries um, for peak power so that I could do things like use power tools, whatever, high, a lot of power needs for power tools. But I'm thinking if I can get them for, this, this panel has cost me 30 bucks, by the way, it's 170 watts, so it's quite dead cheap. So if I could get a whole bunch of these, put them on the roof, um, you know, when the sun's out, I might be able to use some power tools. Um, so, um, and I thought if, if I could get away without using any batteries, then obviously I've not got any real maintenance, just, you know, eventually these panels will um, give up the ghost, but I think they'll go on for quite a while. So what do you think of that as an idea? Um, is that any thoughts? Would be appreciated. So thanks very much. Bye. All right, well, that's a great question for Steve Harris. I'm going to warn the audience right now. When Steve starts this question, he's going to sound sarcastic, and he's almost going to sound like he's beating up on Paul. He's not. He's doing what I often do when I get misunderstood for doing from time to time, so occasionally I explain it. Steve is pretty upset at, let's call them the hucksters in the industry. And some of the opinions that people arrive at about what they need to do come from those hucksters in the industry. So when you hear the initial condescension, Paul, don't take it personally. This is not about you. Audience, don't take it personally. It's not about Paul. It's about the people that are selling, you know, a five page ebook that tells people they can repair a solar panel for $50. 
and telling them they're going to run their house with it. That's what you're hearing uh, from in, in, in the undertone message here, and, and you're going to get a great answer as to what to do as well. Just wanted to preface that because Steve can come off like I do once in a while. We're not coming down on the collar. We're calling down on the source that's maybe put somebody on the wrong path because we get tired of those sources basically victimizing people. So here we go, Steve. Take it away. Hello, Paul from Australia. This is Stephen Harris. I'm here to answer your question. And the answer is no. You cannot fix your panels. I don't know why people continually insist of going, I want to fix my panels. They're broken. It's Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses, all the king's men, all the silicone, all the super glue, all the glass, and all the plexiglass is not going to fix your panel. And here's the other thing. Humpty Dumpty has fallen off of his ledge, and he spilled all his yolk. You're making an omelet now. You do not need to fix the panel. And people will go, oh, well, it's going to rain. And Well, I know there's not much rain in Australia, but it's going to rain. It's going to hurt my panel. No, it's not. Okay? But, Steve, how do you know? Uh, I know because I have wrote the book, literally. I wrote the book. Sunshine the Dollars. And it's all about getting these panels for nothing. And I tell you how to do it in the book, and congratulations. It sounds like you're getting them for cheap or for nothing. I've had these panels on my roof setting up their working for since I wrote the book in 2002. And so that's over 10 years because it's 2012 right now. And they're still working. They're still working fine. They're still outputting voltage, still charging the batteries, and that is without anything protecting them, any silicon, and they're cracked. And you're right, they're broken, and they're not 175 watts anymore. They're going to be half of that, or they're going to be a third of that if they're really broken really bad. But, hey, for 30 bucks, that is a really good deal. I mean, you're not going to get any better than that. So congratulations on getting some free or some cheap solar panels. Now, you asked about, um, I don't get it. You, you want to put the panels on your roof, but, so you might be able to run some power tools when it's sunny and it's like, don't you already have electricity down there? Um, don't you have a source of power already? So what you're saying really doesn't make sense unless you're like trying to run really big power tools and you're worrying about peak shaving because your electricity company is charging you an exorbitant amount of money if you go over a certain amount of electricity during the daytime here most of the people in the united states we get charged one rate no matter what there's no peak or off peak there are in some areas but majority of us who live in civilized area of the united states that aren't run by socialist governments that try to inflate our our, our excuse me, our electric rates. Uh, we don't have that type of measures over us. So if you hook up solar panels directly to the grid to try to do like some peak shaving or net metering, you have to have a grid tie inverter that hooks up the panels directly to the uh, grid without any batteries. And if you, you got to have a net metering arrangement with your electric company so it'll run the meter backwards. So any peak power you use is run backwards when the sunlight is out. But, you know, if you're remote, it doesn't sound like you have that. So pretty much the answer is you need batteries. I mean, that's what, what most solar panels are for. I mean, a solar panel is pretty useless in the preparedness world without a battery. 
that's the whole idea of it. You get your own source of power, albeit a very expensive one, unless you get the panels cheap like they are in my book. And then you're going to put batteries on it, and you're going to have your own little power plant to give you your own little private source of power so you can hook up to it what you want and run what you want when you want, and you can do it when the sun is not shining if the batteries are charged and everything else. So really you need uh, a good set of batteries, and you need a good inverter. Now, uh, you can get batteries really cheap, too. You can go to um, the people who sell forklifts and rent forklifts, and you can get their older batteries for forklifts and electric carts and stuff like that. And they might not be good enough for the electric carts and everything, but they could be very much still very good for doing what you want. So that's a cheap way of getting uh, batteries. The other way to get cheap batteries that are very good batteries that are brand new is you go to the people who sell batteries for golf carts, and you get those. Be careful. Golf cart batteries come in 6 volts and 8 volts. You want to 6 volts. Or if you're running a 24-volt inverter, you want uh, 4 6 volts. And I guess if you wanted three eight volts to make up 24 volts you could but then that still negates your whole 12 volt inverter option and most inverters are 12 volts so pete to answer your question just get the cheap panels and put them up on your roof and hook them up and start using them and hook them up to a battery start making your own electricity and congratulations on getting uh, those panels i hope to hear more from you bye oh and if anyone wants to hear all of my previous interviews and everything on uh, the Survival Podcast, of which I've had uh, seven. I'm the all-time highest uh, guest. Everything about me, my books, if you want the book Sunshine the Dollars, it tells you about free solar panels and stuff. Everything is linked. So all my websites are at solar1234.com. All right, so as you can see, you got a great detailed answer from Steve there. He does come up off the top rope once in a while like I do, but that's part of why I love him. And uh, he brings a tremendous amount of information to the audience. And with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's uh, Survivor here. Um, and I got a question about uh, wood chip mulch, which, which you seem to advocate using wood chips for mulch. And so I, I have some culture beds that I built up in my, in my land, and... Uh, you know, I I, uh, I just got a job and it's a long drive up there, so I don't know if I have time to rent a chipper and all that, and and, and transport, uh, you know, unbagged chips across state lines. Uh, it, it, there's these different rules about the, the firewood and so on because of the uh, Asian longhorn beetle. So I think of bag mulch, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on that because some people I talk to. Um, they say it could have pesticides or it might be treated and all this, and I don't know where to get or what kind of get. So long drive up there, I just got to buy a bunch of chips in the bags and throw them in my truck or something and go up some weekend. Well, I certainly advocate the use of, of wood mulch uh, for growing just about anything. It's probably one of the best things that you could possibly rely on for that. Um, the concerns about nitrogen uptake are largely overblown, and um, there's a great video called Back to Eden that I'll uh, put in the show notes today. And by the way, uh, the stuff that Frank was talking about, the coating for the firearms and, and all the other stuff that came up with Smith & Wesson M&P and the CQB site earlier, I forgot to say, those will be in the show notes too. But Back to Eden is a great case study in what happens when you use heavy amounts of wood mulch in your gardening. And if it works, the guy does primarily uh, annuals for the vegetable production, but if it works with annuals, it's going to work with perennials too. Uh, so it's a great idea. 
I can definitely understand that you wouldn't want to go, let's say, to Lowe's or Home Depot and rent a large chipper shredder and then drive it all the way up to your your, your bug out location. I won't say your states because I don't know if you don't want those on the air, but I think you're crossing two state lines or one state line or something like that to do that. And uh, it's a, probably a pretty big drive into the other state, so that could be uh, an issue I can understand that you wouldn't want to do. If you go to a general landscaping place and get... Uh, wood chips loose, you're going to spend a lot less than buying them bagged, and that will probably save you a lot of money. And if you kept your receipt for it, I can't see that it would be a problem. I, I really can't. Um, now, you may know something about your local laws that I don't, but I, I can't see how that's an issue. If you went out and got a whole bunch of wood and just shredded it up yourself and took it up there, I think it might be a problem. Now, my... Thoughts, though, are you don't have to rent your chipper shredder in one state and then take it all the way up to the other. My most cost-effective, easy solution for you, and it requires you to bring no inputs onto your property then, is why don't you find the closest Home Depot Lowe's or someplace that rents equipment like that, um, drive up there, stop by the, the, the place, rent it from them on site, take it out to your property. I know from seeing pictures of your property, you have tremendous amounts of, of material out there that you could shred up, shred it, return it on your way home, and the cost of that shredder is probably going to definitely be less for, let's say, to rent it for a day than to fill up the back of your truck with, with bagged wood chips. Now, if bagged wood chips is all you or anybody else can get, I've never had any problems with them. I like to use cypress mulch. It's the most affordable. It, it lasts the longest, and it doesn't float away on me like some other mulch has. And it doesn't have some of the, the, uh, the properties of cedar mulches that sometimes... Uh, we look at it as allopathic, uh, but yet it does tend to do a really good job of kind of meshing together and doing a good job of weed suppression. But that's the only reason I'm recommending Cypress is if you're having to buy it in bags. If you can get it by creating it yourself, it's the best because you're going to get all different sizes, all different shapes, little pieces of leaves, little pieces of needles, little pieces of bark, different species. That's the way nature does it. So the best thing that you could do is rent a shredder, take it onto your site and use it there. And if you don't want to transport it, again, I understand completely not wanting to transport it three or four hours, find a local facility to lease from. I think that's the good way to go. Last time I leased one, I think we paid 35 bucks a day for it. And 35 bucks and a mulcher for a day and a sawzall to prune trees and branches and pick stuff off the ground, you could make way more mulch than you will ever buy for 35 bucks, even if you bought it loose from a landscaping facility. Now, let's say you wanted to buy it loose from a landscaping facility and you didn't want to transport it across state lines. Well, and the other option, find a landscaping company that's in the state that your BOL's in. Go by there, pick up a truckload, and take it out. All of those, to me, work better than buying bags of mulch where you're going to pay a very high price for it. It was something I did a lot in suburbia because I didn't have a huge source of material to, to chip myself. Uh, living where we live now, I don't think I'll ever buy a bag of mulch again. We can rent a shredder for a day. We can shred everything we have. We can take it back the same day. And uh, it's their problem with maintenance and stuff. We were going to buy one, and when we thought about it that way, we went, you know, we could rent one four, five, six times a year for ten years before we would even get close uh, to the cost of buying a really good one. So that's my advice to you, Survivor. Uh, let's, uh, or I should say Survivor. I think I said that wrong. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Kansas. I got a question for you about uh, preparation and traveling overseas. 
I got to head that way in a couple weeks here, and I've heard and seen some things about the country I'm going to that makes me think that uh, the government may be due for a change. I've got about uh, half a cubic foot to a cubic foot of space that I can put in my luggage. I wanted to ask you, what would you put in that space to help you in case you got stranded over there and the, uh, you know, the government fell apart? Thanks for the show. I listen to you all the time. You've really helped my family out a lot. Take care. Well, when I, I heard this question, I thought I just interviewed the perfect guy to answer this question, the guy that's had to deal with this crap his whole life as a contractor serving in really bad places overseas. We just had him on to talk about bug out, bug out location, uh, security and home security during a breakdown, and we call him because he doesn't want to reveal his name, Joe Nobody. Uh, he's written some great books, so I emailed his publicist and said, would Joe serve on my expert counsel? They came back and said he would be honored to do so. He was able to phone in his response. And uh, take it away, Joe Nobody. Hi, Joe and Jack. This is Joe Nobody responding to the question about uh, visiting a foreign country and taking along a survival kit. I would take the following items. Number one, language cards. Obviously, in the native language, the most common language spoken in the country I was going to visit. Two would be a map in English. Three would be iodine tablets. Uh, I would put them in a vitamin bottle, if possible, or, or something similar to disguise their purpose from nosy customs agents. Number four would be uh, Imodium or something similar to address diarrhea. There's nothing worse than being on the road and being in a bad situation and having uh, the runs. Number five, I would contact my doctor and tell him I was going overseas. I would ask for a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Uh, again, depending on uh, what you're going to go through in customs going in, uh, you might want to disguise that. Uh, an international voltage converter, uh, a lot of overseas voltages, uh, our plugs won't work very well. That's especially true in Europe and parts of the Middle East. Uh, number seven, I would have a list of every store or outlet uh, nearby to where I was going to be staying. Most countries have sporting goods stores where I could get a good knife, a portable stove, a first aid kit, uh, you know, just in case it does all go to hell while I was there. Uh, even in Afghanistan, uh, the airport has a PX that carries all that kind of stuff. I think it would be very rare that there wouldn't be at least something close by where you could get items that you'd like to have in a survival situation but you can't buy uh, or carry through customs, I'm sorry. Number eight, uh, I would pack a couple of packs of Jell-O, uh, just regular old Jell-O mix or other high-calorie uh, compressed food, uh, maybe some camping food, uh, power bars, things like that. Uh, I carry Jell-O my, in my kit all the time. Number nine, and this is probably one of the most important items, I would have a written plan uh, or alternative ways to get out uh, other than the airport, uh, train station, uh, port, if it's a, a city, you know, if you're going to be staying close to the sea. Uh, even a rental car uh, can be a good way to get out. Uh, while I had Internet access before I left, I would print out three or four basic messages associated with that plan uh, in the native language. Uh, for example, how do I get to the airport? How do I get to uh, the, the uh, port where I might be able to get on a freighter and get out? Things like that. Um, the next thing, if I could afford it, I would take along some small denomination gold coins. Gold is an international uh, uh, voice. It's an international message. 
if you can't afford some small denomination gold coins, find out what's va uh, valuable in your destination country. For example, American cigarettes are still valuable in some parts of the world. Um, I used to carry a couple of re replica watches, uh, preferably, uh, you know, the 39 or $59 knockoffs that look like a Rolex or a Brentlinger or, uh, you know, something expensive. And uh, at a chaotic border crossing uh, or with some local authorities, you just never know. you got to be careful with that sort of thing. But, um, you know, a good-looking watch uh, sometimes can uh, uh, speak a language all its own. And the final thing I would do before I left is I would make sure my cell phone uh, was turned on to work internationally. Even Afghanistan has cell phone service in the major cities. I uh, hope this has helped. I hope you have a good trip and make it back safe. And uh, wish all the preppers well out there. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that was absolutely outstanding and better than I could have done on my own. So I think we have another great council member. Uh, Joe, again, walks the walk, talks the talk. And uh, one of the best interviews I think we've ever had. I had a couple of people email me in and go, that was a very Rawlsian, you know, like James Rawls Patriots and not your typical type of thing that you talk about. And my response to that was, Just because I say that it's not highly likely that situations can get that bad doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare for the possibility that they would. I would also tell you that when it comes to security, um, it doesn't matter if it happens to everybody. It only matters if it happens to you. That's something we all need to you know, keep on our minds when we're thinking about the potential for breakdowns and, 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 and things like that. And we look at Argentina, much of the country still hold together, but there's all these types of pockets where people are being abducted and shot and stabbed. Uh, and don't think it can't happen here because people get abducted, shot, and stabbed every day right now. So if we just take and we have, let's say, a 25% failure rate in services across the country, Don't you think that we might have to worry about that? That's why we're going to keep Joe on the council and have him continue to answer your questions on security and international travel. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Ridge Runner off the forum, Barry in uh, Georgia. Uh, I've got a question for you. Um, with everything going on with real estate and, and, and ideas of what's going on with the economy, um, I've had, I have an opportunity to buy 100 acres. Uh, probably less than a mile from my current homestead. Um, my current homestead has about three or four acres on it. But this, this 100 acres um, has recently become available. It's been available for a while now. But since the urban sprawl from the greater Atlanta area has tapered off and is sort of the withdrawal, I guess you would say, uh, there's a large piece of real estate available. My question to you is this. Um, being as everything is Doing the prepper lifestyle, everything could be going great for, for me and mine. Um, would it be wise um, to look at looking at that real estate or even posing it, uh, considering everything with the economy? I uh, appreciate your thoughts on the idea, Jack. Thanks for the show. Bye. Well, on one level, it's all about the price and how much money you have. And are you going to be financing it or buying it outright? Uh, those change a lot of things, and those are things you have to consider everything else I'm going to say for yourself. If you're going to tell me you can buy 100 acres near Atlanta, Georgia, for $800 an acre, you should have bought it yesterday, assuming you can afford it and everything works out. If you're going to tell me it's $5,000 an acre and you're going to drop a half a million dollars here, I don't know about that. Uh, and it could be somewhere in between. I really don't know. Because uh, I don't know the, the land prices in your market. But that's your first thing is what is land selling for five miles closer and five miles further out right now? What is and not what it's being listed for? 
this is where you got to talk to an agent and say, I need to see some comparable sales, things that actually went through the money changed hands in the last 90 days. And that's going to be giving you your fair market value price right now. But if you want to see a trend, if you could get some numbers from, from six months ago and one year ago and see that trend, you might analyze that trend and see that it's a steady downfall in actual sale price. Now, there's a fundamental reality that people that own land are only going to sell it for so low, regardless of what it's really worth. Uh, and the, the, the key there is to make sure that their problem doesn't become your problem. So what I mean by that is there's times where you have a tract of land that's, let's say, say worth $100,000. The guy owns 150 on it, so he wants 150 minimum for it so he can get out of it clean. And he's looking for somebody to come in that wants it so bad that they're either willing to pony up the cash or they're willing to pony up sufficient cash that the bank goes, yeah, it's only worth 100, but you're going to put 75 down, so we only have to loan you 75 on 100. That's 25% down, yeah, and you got good credit and you've got money and this doesn't wipe you out. Yeah, we'll do it. So they're looking for somebody that wants it so bad that they'll break the market to do it. And... When I ever talk to somebody that says, well, I have more than that into it, my response is, that's not my problem. I don't even need to be a jerk about it or anything, but it's not my problem, and I'm not going to make it my problem. The, and so one of my concerns is, you said, it's been for sale for a while. If land has been for sale for a while, typically that means it's priced higher than anybody is currently willing to pay for it. Think about that. That's, that's a fundamental reality, that right now that land is priced high enough that it's remaining on the market. So with your comparables in place, with your trend in place, then you can go in and you can make a fair market value offer on the property. And if the answer to that is no, then you say, when you're ready to sell your property for a fair market value, call me. By the way, I've noticed the trend is down. Right? It was, it was here in, in, in one year ago. It was here six months ago. It's here now. That means that when you decide you're ready to sell this in the future, that if the trend continues down, I might not be willing to make this same offer six months from now because if the comparables in the area are lower, I'm not going to go below or above the fair market value. That this is a business decision I'm making here. That's how you need to talk to the other person's agent or them directly. If they don't like it, they don't like it. I mean, that's just the thing of it. Now, is land itself a good investment right now? Well, let's look at it this way. There's, there's, there's only three things that we can see in the foreseeable future, let's say five to ten years happening. A, an economic recovery, false or real, but somehow over the next five to ten years, the economy looks like it's getting better and better. Unemployment goes down. I'm completely wrong about the future. All the contrarian economists are wrong. It gets better. If you buy land... At market value today, that close to a major city, and we go into some kind of extended recovery, you can make a ton of money by selling, developing the land in the future if you choose to, or you can keep it. Okay? If the economy takes a crap, let's say it goes, it gets really bad really fast, assuming that you're not over leveraged with debt on the property, assuming that you've paid cash for it, or short term financed it, or something like that, or you've, you've worked things out to where the payment's low enough that you have enough cash reserves that you're going to be able to pay for it for 10 years, even if everything goes, goes to pot, well now you have a resource. A resource that might become more and more valuable uh, from a standpoint of food production or something like that. But the concept of developing it in the traditional sense of development is gone. It, it's ruined. And, and, and right now, that's why it's somewhat depressed, right? Or it's something you can move on to and live off of, you know, in that scenario. Um, as long as you have the money, that's not a huge risk. If things kind of just go into a 
lost decade like Japan, where things move sideways for 10 years, and you and yours, as you say, do okay through that period of time, then you just have land. And you can probably, if you ever have to, sell it for about or a little more or a little less than you've paid, and you can offload it if you have to, as long as you buy it fair-priced. And this is how we have to evaluate. It's not about well, the, everything with the economy. It's it's not about that, because the economy could you could have been looking at this property in two thousand three, two thousand four, and everybody would have said real estate's the, the the thing, man. Buy it. Interest rates are low now; they're twice as low as they were then, right? Property is nowhere to go but up. It's booming, so it all looked great then, and it would have been a terrible time to buy. I would say the correction has probably come back far enough in that area that you would have overpaid. You would have paid more for it, not just before the bust in 2008. You would have overpaid for this thing in 2004. So you have to look at it completely from your standpoint of how much money you have, how much income you have, how much redundancy you have, and what you want to do with the property and the real estate market be damned. Now, I will say this. I think there's so much potential for future downside, right? that it doesn't make sense to buy property as a pure play investment right now. You're either buying property because you have plans for it long-term, or you're going to hold it long-term. And if some short-term opportunity comes up, and it just makes financial sense to execute on it, then you're going to execute on it because you choose to at the time. But the concept that I'm going to buy this property, and it's a, just, I'm going to just sit on it, and it's just, it's just a good, it's like putting my money in the bank, you know, real estate's as good as money in the bank, don't do that right now. There, there, there are th those three different ways are all different ways we could go, and I don't know which one it's going to be, and I don't know how long we're going to be on that path. So you have to only buy a property that you can handle any one of those three outcomes: static, up or down. And up's easy, right? Everybody wins in an up, but you're not guaranteed an up. Now, as I've said before, I believe that we eventually have, are going to go through some misery that's going to make this great recession look like a joke. But how long out that gets that football gets kicked, I don't know. There's a lot of games that these guys can play in the meantime. And our job is to play the game while it's running and to do a better job than everybody else around us so we can capitalize on the opportunities that are created by these variances in the market. But if, let's say, you can get this property for hundred grand and you have fifty to put down, you're only financing 50000 on 100 acres, and you want to use it right now for something – I would be comfortable. If you would think about selling your existing home and building on it and relocating there, then I would even be more comfortable. If you're going to think about parceling it out and leasing it out to farmers and there's good things to be farmed in there and there's interest in that, there's all types of things you can do, but know what you're going to do with it before you buy it. That's what I would say about any real estate right now. One thing I would not be doing right now is going out and buying 20 or 30 houses and becoming a landlord. Uh, the underlying property values could really go to bed in a bad way. It might not, but you could also go down to the casino and put $50,000 on black and win and just as easily lose. That's how I see it right now. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Brent from Michigan. I'm calling in regards to, you know, how we all talk about how the Fed are devaluing our money. And uh, I read a story once where they were talking about how under-the-table money is a big untaxed thing for the government. Now there's millions and millions of dollars there for the tax to get that money. There's probably a lot of people are doing other state workers. Like, I paid a guy to do my culture bed. I'm sure he didn't report that, but that's all right. They'll dig it up for me, you know. So, and now here Canada is talking about doing all electronic funds. 
Well, what's your thoughts on that, Jack? Tell me what you think. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. I hate to be this pessimistic, but it's not if but when. Um, this has been a goal of the financial elite forever. Uh, from the very time that the first concept of a real legitimate modern computer system made the concept possible. From the days of the first credit cards, uh, it was immediately snapped to by these folks that, hey, if we get them into a cashless society, we have complete control. And, you know, if you don't believe that people that run governments, mega corporations, and mega banks don't want complete control, you are delusional. You are fooling yourself. And the number one way you can control people is money. Money has the greatest potential to liberate mankind and the greatest potential to enslave mankind at the same time. It is like a gun. I can take a gun and defend my family, put food on the table, and have an overall sense of security from it that allows me to behave like a true human being because I know I can defend myself. Someone else can take that gun and go kill, rob, maim, torture, and destroy with it. It's the same tool And it's the hand of the tool user that determines how that tool works. Money works exactly the same way. In the hands of those that are in control, money enslaves people to jobs that they hate. Money re makes people work half of the year for their government and basically be an indentured servitude. Money leveraged into the property market creates a feudal society with property taxes where you never really own your property because if the government can take it away from you because you didn't pay them a tribute on it based on what they say it's worth, it's not really yours. I, I believe in property ownership, but I also understand that other reality. So if we can get to a cashless society, then we have complete control instead of most of the control. That's, that's the goal. It's also to completely remove privacy. Yes, they will talk about how much taxes get sheltered by people paying cash for things. But trust me, giving a guy two or three hundred bucks to uh, build your Google culture bed and paying him with twenties, yeah, there's a tax loophole there. But most of the people doing that kind of work, they don't make enough money to pay that much in income tax in the dadgone first place. Uh, the only place that cash money is really being effectively used to avoid taxation right now is probably drugs and prostitution and other illegal contraband items, like maybe bootleg whiskey, which I think is, despite reality TV, not quite as big a business as they say that it is. That's about the only places. Um, there maybe there's some businesses out there that I don't know are you know selling used items or something like that to, to create some loopholes. But again, the, the the people operating at that level, you know, just understand if you make fifty thousand dollars or less a year, you're not paying much in income tax anyway. And, and I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying you're not. So all the people operating in that level with cash money aren't really sheltering much of anything. Um, sales tax revenue possibly, but it all depends. Remember, there's no tax in most states on labor, only goods. Uh, and a lot of times in many places, goods are only taxed uh, on, on a, the end user sales. So if you're you know, supplier A to B to C to D, only the final sell to the consumer uh, incurs a tax. So it's not the problem if they'll make it out. But that's what they'll say. They'll say there's all these, we're going to shut down the drug cartels with this is what they'll tell you. 
And the drug cartels will immediately get, an, uh, get a Diners Club card and a MasterCard, and a, they'll probably get black Amexes and stuff like that. And most of these guys have already come up with creative ways to put their money into the legitimate system. Most of the kingpin drug dealers are living in houses in Malibu or the upper end of Dallas or something like that. They're not the street-level street dealers on the street. Would it hamper the drug industry? Sure. Will they come up with a way around it? Of course they will. Right? It, will it make us safer? No. Here's what it will do. Every legitimate citizen performing a legitimate transaction will be performing that transaction in a way that somebody somewhere can find out what they did, when they did it, how much it was. It's the complete loss of the last shreds of privacy that we have. And it's yet another reason to, to right now start buying some gold and silver while you still can, especially while you still can for cash. Because people will always take something of value in exchange for something else of value, And there will always be a desire for a medium of exchange. And silver coins, gold coins, just as Joe said, have a universality. And the odds are that even if they get to that cashless society, sooner or later this system has to fail anyway. And when it fails, that's our chance to fix the problem. Sometimes we can't fix a problem before the, 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 the system that is too big fails. We have to wait for the opportunity. And in this case, sadly, we may have to wait for that opportunity. But yes, that's what they want. That's what they've wanted for a long time. And anybody that tells you that's conspiracy theory, you only need to give them one statistic. Today, less than 3% of the money in America is in the form of cash. 97% or more of it is in the form of ones and zeros. So they've already eliminated 97%, 97% of circulating cash. And gee, guess what? It's kind of interesting that they de devalued the dollar by about the same amount in the same period of time the Federal Reserve took over in 1913. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Rancher One School from the Forum. My question for you is in regards to, is in regards to Bill Pong. I was wondering if you could use... Um, lamb or uh, goat to make biltong with. I know you can't use um, pigs or chicken. So uh, anyways, um, love your show. Love all you that you do. Bye. Starting out with goat, um, those of us who have eaten goat and also eaten some of the various different antelopes that are uh, from the uh, African side of the world would tell you that a lot of times those meats are very, very similar. That there's especially the smaller antelope species. Uh, it is quite similar to goat. I really never thought about it until this question came up, and I've had a couple opportunities to uh, sample food like that. Um, and uh, so I don't see any reason not to because they certainly do it with bushmeat all the time. Uh, and I, I don't see any safety issues, whatever, with the goat, and it'll probably come out pretty good. Uh, lamb. I love lamb. I dearly love lamb. I don't eat it often as, as often as I'd like to because my wife does not love lamb. So that means that if I get lamb and cook it, I have to get something to cook for her too. So I have to cook two different things. But I adore lamb. But lamb, and the reason a lot of people don't care for it is it's, 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 it's got a very distinctive flavor to the fat, and it's quite fatty meat. Even when it doesn't look marbled when you cook it, part of what makes it so wonderful is it's so juicy because there's so much internal fat. Because you've got a, a lamb that's not fully grown yet that's, you know, been on milk and, you know, nursing, and even though they've probably grown to a point beyond that, that's been recent and they're still in that growth stage and they're still very tender and yum, right? So that's that's what makes it so great. But it does have the distinctive flavor. I've never tried it. I can't tell you in any way, shape, or form that I think there would be anything harmful in doing it. 
but I would expect that that flavor would get concentrated, and I would think that the fattiness of the lamb would have a tendency to go rancid more quickly than very lean cuts of things like goat and beef and other, you know, venison and things like that. So anything with a lot of fat, it doesn't make really good biltong. If you ever end up with like a piece of fat on a, on a piece of meat and you biltong it, that piece of fat kind of tastes like a nasty, waxy, salty piece of candle grossness. Now, if you've ever eaten a piece just to see what it's like, I have, I know, I don't like it. Some people actually like it, but I would expect that you would have long-term storage issues with lamb that you wouldn't with leaner meats. If you were going to try it, I would try to get the leanest cuts of lamb that you can to try it with. But personally, I just think it's too wonderful of a meat to cook with to turn it into biltong. I look at biltong as survival meat. You take the cuts of meat that normally just don't come out that well because they're too lean and larger muscle groups and worked harder and, and tough. And when you turn them into biltong, they turn into this wonderful meat candy. Uh, so those are my thoughts on it. I, all I can say is try it. And if anybody's done lamb biltong and had good results or poor results, let me know what they were in today's show notes. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is John from Florida calling in to share an experience I had last weekend while trying to cash in some change at my local bank. I go in just to cash in some, some old coin or some coins and they tell me I can't, they won't take any rolled coins at the counter anymore and I gotta use their, one of those change machines. And they actually charge, they tax me to put my change, my money, their own money that they are certifying in the bank. Uh, 5% if you're a bank, uh, if you're part, you know, you're part of that bank, uh, over 25 bucks and if you're not a member, then you gotta pay 10%. Is this even legal? I just I just don't understand. Uh, I'd love to hear your comments, and I hope this gets on the show. Thank you. Funny how a lot of these calls just kind of dovetail. One call later, we're back to the subject of money and cash and uh, the way it's perceived in society. First of all, one of the reasons that banks value change less today than they have in the past is because less and less people use cash, so their customers are less likely to come in and request change so that they can make change. So they're getting this much larger influx when uh, local merchants and stores and stuff do deposits instead of coming in with a bunch of cash deposits and you know saying give me you know fifty dollars in quarters twenty dollars in nickels and you know fifty dollars in dimes so that they can make change for the rest of the week they, they don't have that they're doing everything electronically and there's a lot less cash coming into the banking system and a lot less requirement from the merchant back for change. So then the bank says we get enough change deposits in to handle all of the change back out from our business customers, which probably get some kind of exemption if they're doing you know, a certain amount of business or something like that when they bring in their cash deposits. So then they turn and they look at you guys as a pain in the ass that are bringing all your change in and dumping it in their sorting machine and they end up with a surplus of change and it's heavy and it's bulky and they have to move it around and they don't have enough demand to get rid of it so they start charging you for it so that they either make money off of it or so you'll go away and go somewhere else. Uh, is that more evidence that we're moving toward a cashless society? Well, to me it is. Uh, what's the solution though? Uh, the solution is probably to find a different bank that, that, that's not doing that at least yet. Uh, our bank in Texas, you don't have to roll your money or anything. You walk in with a jar 
They'll dump it in. They'll give you a receipt for how much it was. You can either have them give you cash or fill out a deposit, and they'll deposit it straight away, and they don't charge you. So it's not like all banks are doing this. wouldn't surprise me if it was a Bank of America location. They seem to be doing everything that they can to piss people off. Piss off gun owners. Piss, piss off credit card users. Piss off debit card users. Piss off people depositing in change. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was them. Uh, or at least a larger bank or, you know, Chase or something like that, you know. Um, but I would just look for a smaller bank that's going to value your business more or a local credit union and you probably won't have that problem because they're going to be dealing with more of the smaller merchants that do the cash deposits and do have the change requirements. So I would move your business elsewhere. Is it legal? It's absolutely legal. It's absolutely legal. The only legality that you could get into on somebody, whether they'll accept change or not, or charge you in a, in a different way, would be the legal tender law. So if you went to the bank and they said, we sell cookies today, and you wanted to buy $100 worth of cookies and pay in quarters, uh, they could tell you no, but maybe you could have a case, you could say, this is legal tender, you have to take it, but you're, they're not selling to you here. You're asking them to perform a service with your change. So while it may not be fair, while it may not be right, while it may not be even in some levels moral to treat a customer that way, they certainly have the legal right to do it. Let's take another call. Actually, hold on. We don't have another call. I know we've gone long today, guys, but there's some stuff that, that I wanted to finish up with today. Um, what I have for you now is a video clip. I'm going to play the audio of it. Many of you may have already heard it. It's called If I, Want America, if I Wanted America to Fail. And um, it's so spot on, it's scary. And it caused a lot of controversy because, like, Twitter took their account down for a while or something like that, as though it was hate speech or something, while they allowed some real hate speech to go on that you guys probably know about. We kind of talked about the incident earlier where, you know, people were tweeting they wanted George Zimmerman dead, and they didn't take that account down. And they were, so it was Ice-T or Ice Cube or somebody tweeted his freaking home address, and it ended up being a couple old people. They didn't take that account down, but this guy, they, they took his Twitter account down. And, and, like, until a stink got raised with talk radio and stuff like that, uh, they, they ended up having to bring it back. But um, this video's on YouTube. Uh, watching it's probably better than listening to it, but listening to it, it, it really is spot on. Um, some of you guys that are true believers in global warming aren't going to like it. I say give it a listen. But more importantly, when I come back, I'm not going to talk about the energy issue. I'm not going to talk about global warming. I have a response to that that I think you need to hear, and I think it'd be a great thing for you to hear on a Friday. If I wanted America to fail, to follow, not lead, to suffer, not prosper, to despair, not dream. I'd start with energy. I'd cut off America's supply of cheap, abundant energy. I couldn't take it by force. So I'd make Americans feel guilty about using the energy that heats their homes, fuels their cars, runs their businesses, and powers their economy. I'd make cheap energy expensive, so that expensive energy would seem cheap. I would empower unelected bureaucrats to all but outlaw America's most abundant sources of energy. After banning its use in America, I'd make it illegal for American companies to ship it overseas. If I wanted America to fail, I'd use their schools to teach one generation of Americans that their factories and their cars will cause a new ice age. And I'd muster a straight face so I could teach the next generation that they're causing global warming. When it's cold out, I'd call it climate change instead. 
I'd imply that America's cities and factories could run on wind power and wishes. I'd teach children how to ignore the hypocrisy of condemning logging, mining, and farming while having roofs over their heads, heat in their homes, and food on their tables. I would never teach children that the free market is the only force in human history to uplift the poor, establish the middle class, and create lasting prosperity. Instead, I demonize prosperity itself so that they will not miss what they will never have. If I wanted America to fail, I would create countless new regulations and seldom cancel old ones. That would be so complicated that only bureaucrats, lawyers, and lobbyists could understand them. That way, small businesses with big ideas wouldn't stand a chance. And I would never have to worry about another Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, or Steve Jobs. I would ridicule as flat earthers those who urge them to lower energy costs by increasing supply. And when the evangelists of common sense try to remind people about the laws of supply and demand, I'd enlist a sympathetic media to drown them out. If I wanted America to fail, I would empower unaccountable bureaucracy seated in a distant capital to bully Americans out of their dreams and their property rights. I'd send federal agents to raid guitar factories for using the wrong kind of wood. I'd force homeowners to tear down their own homes built on their own land. I'd make it almost impossible for farmers to farm, miners to mine, loggers to log, and builders to build. Because I don't believe in free markets, I'd invent false ones. I'd devise fictitious products like carbon credits and trade them in imaginary markets. I'd convince people that this would create jobs and be good for the economy. If I wanted America to fail, for every concern I'd invent a crisis, and for every crisis I'd invent the cause, like shutting down entire industries and killing tens of thousands of jobs in the name of saving spotted owls. And when everyone learned the stunning irony that the owls were victims of their larger cousins and not people, it would already be decades too late. If I wanted America to fail, I'd make it easier to stop commerce than to start it, easier to kill jobs than create them, more fashionable to resent success than to seek it. When industries seek to create jobs, I'd file lawsuits to stop them, and then I'd make taxpayers pay for my lawyers. If I wanted America to fail, I would transform the environmental agenda from a document of conservation to an economic suicide pact. I would concede entire industries to our economic rivals by imposing regulations that cost trillions. I would celebrate those who preach environmental austerity in public while indulging a lavish lifestyle in private. I convince Americans that Europe has it right and that America has it wrong. If I wanted America to fail, I would prey on the goodness and the decency of ordinary Americans. I would only need to convince them that all of this is for the greater good. If I wanted America to fail, I, I suppose I wouldn't change a thing. I realize for some of you guys that uh, it's a big leap to accept that all of that is true. I believe in most of it. And you know where I am on the climate issue, so I'm not even going to go there today. I've told you I've pretty much said what I have to say about that, and I'm done. What I think we can all agree on is we've looked over the last few months to last few years. We've seen many of the things in this video 
happen that have absolutely nothing to do with direct environmentalism, like farmers having their farms shut down, like people being threatened with jail for having gardens in their front garden, children told they can't wear a shirt with a picture of the American flag to a school. Uh, we've had businesses being told to remove the American flag. We've had a man put in jail in California because he set up a barter network for women who were breastfeeding to barter for goat's milk uh, because some of those women were not capable of, of, of producing breast milk and as the best substitute uh, for, for human breast milk. And we've had over and over and over and over again examples of people stepping on the throats of average Americans, average small business people, and we've watched the ass clowns in the government get away with it. They got their heads rolled in the last election, and 50% of them immediately went out and got jobs as lobbyists. They have more influence and are higher paid than ever before. Whether you think that the problems pointed out in this video are accurate or not, the problems are such that we all have to admit together that it's clear that the people in control want more control, they want us to have less control, and indeed, they have set a course for America to fail. There wasn't a single solution in that video, though. And when we look at what the people are doing to our fellow Americans across the country, and we complain about it, we yell about it, we get angry about it. There is value in that because anger creates action, but there's no solutions there. It's Friday afternoon. You just heard some pretty somber stuff. I think you need to hear some solutions. So my response to if I wanted, to, if I wanted America to fail, I'm going to call if I wanted to save America. If I wanted to save America, the first thing that I would do is teach every single American that would listen to me that they have internal power. I would teach, I would teach them all that no one could take it away. I would teach them that a law is only a written command by another man, and any law can be unwritten, and any law can be challenged, and any law can eventually be defeated. I would teach them that laws get passed unjustly when men are afraid. And that men become afraid when they worry about feeding their family or feeding themselves. Men become afraid when they worry that someone will come take what they have or harm them or harm their children. But that when men are not afraid, when they stand up and they know they can care for their families, they can care for their children, they can care for their wives, they can be the leaders in the home that they're supposed to be, they don't capitulate. They don't compromise. They hold their ground. I would teach them that the solution is not in any way currently existing in the, the beltway around the District of Columbia or the state houses across America. I would teach them that the solution is not in government. It's in their own homes. It's in their own backyards. That's where the solutions are. I would teach America to plant trees and gardens that produce food for themselves to eat everywhere and every place they can. I would teach them that even though everything that we talk about is true, that they're coming to take away people's pigs, they're coming to take away people's gardens, they're actually doing this crap at the local level, the federal level, the state level, all over the place, that it's very damn hard to come put somebody in jail for a garden if everybody in that neighborhood is standing in the front yard going, I don't think so today. I don't think we're going to let you do this today. And if we start having each other's backs, the fear transfers from us to them. 
I would teach them that we have already developed a pattern that we you should know that you can go out and do these things that people like us will have your back, do have your back, and we will act. That if you attack an old lady with bone cancer, you'll put a blight on your city for a decade. That's what they did to themselves. The name of that city for shall ever, in the minds of anybody that heard the story, go, oh, those are the people that, and will come through for that person, one way or another, will have their back. If you try to put a lady in jail for a front yard garden in Michigan, in a city where you can't even keep the freaking lights on five days a week, you have to close on Fridays, then thousands and thousands of fellow Americans from across the country will call you and tell you they're paying attention to what you're doing, and they will support that person with a legal defense fund and shove it back up your ass. If I wanted to save America, I would teach my fellow Americans these things. I would teach our children to be good citizens in their schools and obey the rules, but question every damn thing a teacher says, especially when it's supposed to be an education and it's an opinion. When they're told so-and-so was bad, ask why. Ask how do we know that. Ask is there another side to the story. And whatever they're taught and whatever they have to put on the paper to get an A, I would tell them to write that down and then come home and talk to me about it, talk to you about it, and find out the real truth. I would teach Americans to once again discover their own history, to accept their own faults and their own mistakes. If I wanted to save America... I would admit that we screwed them some things up, that we oppressed people on our own lands, and I would teach people about the battles that were fought for equality, fought and won, and the amazing, immense opportunity that was created when those battles were fought and won, and that the time to, to, to fight those battles is in our past, not our future. Now it's the time to unite and do things. I would teach America that when somebody says the things I'm saying now, and another person says them, And another person says them. And they're heard. The people behind the desks that make the decisions, that say they won't let you quake in fear. Because they know it's not they won't let us. It's they, they know the truth is for this long, we've allowed them. We've allowed them to act. We've empowered them. We put them there. We paid for them. We can change it there, but we got to change it right in our own homes first, right with our own children first. If I wanted to save America, I would teach every person within the sound of my voice to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and take care of themselves and their families first and then to take care of their communities and their neighbors and then to take care of their cities. And I would teach them to take their cities back first. I would teach them that what these clowns are doing at the federal level doesn't even really matter right now because it's too big, they've got too much power, and they've got too much control, and it's time to take the power at the city and the town level back for the common person and then turn that apparatus of government on their counties and then take their counties back and then take the county government and spin it around so it's not coming down your throat and put it down the throat of the state and then demand that the state stand up to the feds. But it's a bottom-up approach. It doesn't start in a picket line. It doesn't stop or start with an occupied demonstration. It starts with you. If I wanted to save America, 
I would teach Americans to once again be proud to be an American. I would teach them you do not have to be proud of the actions of your government or the mega corporations running your government or the lobbyists running your government to be proud to be an American and to be proud of what America is. If I wanted to save America, I would teach Americans that America isn't a place with borders and laws and government. America is an idea that created a place with borders, laws, and government. And that those borders, laws, and government were to exist to serve the people who had the courage to have the idea and make it real. And I would teach them that there's immense amounts of things to be proud about from that. I would teach them to once again value their flag even if they're opposed to a war fought under that flag, to realize the flag is not about war. The flag is about the freedom that it's supposed to represent. And if you're not happy that that freedom's there anymore, not there anymore, take it back. And that's the big thing I would try to teach America if I wanted to save it. I would teach them that nobody will give you your freedom back. You must take it, you must claim it, you must do it in your own lives. You must be bold. You must be decisive. You must be willing to act, and you must not let fear get in between you and doing what you dream of doing, what you really believe in, and teaching your children the same thing. In fact, I can sum it up this way. If I wanted to save America, I would simply teach Americans to act like Americans. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
shadow.